You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is John Cornwell, co-founder and CEO of Newsflare. John, welcome to the show. Good to be here, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad this worked out. You are based in London, but we had a chance to meet at your happy hour this past week and uh, taking advantage of the time while you're here in LA. Absolutely. Yeah, we opened an office back in January with, a, with our first hire. Uh, the team's now up to four, soon to be five, and we're very, very, very excited to be here. Fantastic. Yeah, and you're doing the full U.S. tour, right? Swinging through San Francisco and New York on your way home? San Francisco tomorrow, where we're, we're checking out an ad agency. So they're, they're a very important growing uh, part of our, our revenue mix. Yeah. Um, and then uh, New York on Thursday, catching up with AP and also uh, an ex-industry guy who's uh, looking for his next step. Okay, fantastic. Well, I thought we'd start things off today by uh, talking about how you got your start. Your original career was in management consulting, and then you know, you've eventually found your way into the media space. How did that come about? So I, um, I worked with a management consultancy called, called Ernst & Young uh, for about the first five and a half years of my career, and then specialized in what was then kind of very broadly called CRM in customer insight for um, a company that served Tesco, who are a big UK grocer. A couple of years there, and then started my first business, which was combining the consultancy of Ernst & Young with the customer insight of this company called Dunhumby, and had my first taste of running a business, very much a consultancy model, and then when I came to sell my shares in that five years later, I discovered that it's pretty tricky securing a good exit from a consultancy business. And I was looking around for what was emerging and what was new. Sure. So what originally inspired you to take the leap and start your own business? A frustration, I think, really, that probably slightly arrogantly, but I, I just saw a bunch of things I thought could be done better. And I wanted to be master of my own destiny. I wanted to sort of live and uh, thrive or suffer based on my own decisions rather than other people's. So that first company, was that ClearCell Group? It was indeed, yeah. Very good. And uh, you mentioned it can be a bit hard to extricate yourself successfully from the consultancy. And that's, I would imagine, because so much of uh, the business rests on the work that you're able to deliver. People want to you know, sign up to a consultancy because of your reputation and your prior work history. Yeah, probably quite naively at the time. But I was uh, shocked and dismayed when I learned that the value of the business would drop with my departure. And I, and I kind of, um, I resolved that my next business would be one that wasn't so reliant on me by the time it, it got to a point where uh, somebody might want to require it. And is that what kind of motivated you to get into technology? I definitely have my eyes on a, on a platform business. I think I'm not a technologist by background. I've been working with and in tech for a while, but uh, the thought of building something that's IP, like purely IP, I was more interested in, in the challenge of a platform play. Sure. So what was the original inspiration behind Newsflare? Well, the original story is, is that back in summer of 2010, I bumped into a, an old associate in a, in a pub in London, and he said, come and meet this guy, Bevan Thomas. He's got this idea that the future of news is going to be shot on smartphones and that we're all going to become citizen journalists. Anyway, Be Bevan and I co-founded the business um, about four or five months later after that. And the original idea was very much of a, a news, a mobile-enabled news community. And we've been through a number of pivots since then. Wow. So you and Bevan hit it off, and four or five months later, you decide, hey, let's launch a company together. Well, a couple of things happened. December 2010, the Arab Spring kicked off. And that was the first time that visual media and social media really properly collided. It was largely stills, but there were some videos. 
starting to move around, you know, links to YouTube and what have you. And that was kind of like, yeah, this, this is, there's a social cause going on here that's really being given a voice by uh, advances in technology across digital image capture and social media. A bit later on the following year, around summer 2011, we had a thing called the London Riots in the UK. I don't know how much coverage it got over here, but essentially it was, uh, it was just that. It was, it was about 48 hours of intense rioting, but the video footage that was captured was, was absolutely huge. I think by the end of the summer 2010, Apple had shifted maybe 50 million units of, of iPhone. Um, so it really was the beginning of, of the smartphone. And that's one of the big technological revolutions that made this all possible, right? The fact that everyone could now capture video on demand, upload it, distribute it to an audience, made this model possible, right? And at the same time, there are these kind of shifts in the economics of journalism that make it harder for them to support their business on, on a purely ad-supported model. So are they looking for different uh, solutions to getting content and getting things quickly so they can meet a deadline? Yeah, the two challenges that the publishers, the journalists, if you like, that are faced with that we address are speed and trust. So, yeah, there may be a great video out there of a particular news event, but can they, can they get hold of it fast enough to incorporate it in the news cycle? And then the second thing is, when they do get it, who are they talking to about it? How reliable are they? Can they negotiate decent commercial or an achievable commercial rate for that footage? We position ourselves in, in between the public and, and the, the media companies that want to publish their material to take those two challenges out of the mix. How do you help on the trust front? I imagine there's kind of a lot of challenges around verifying the accuracy of the footage, who the uploader is, right? How do you ensure that that is, uh, is done correctly for both parties? So that's a combination of good old-fashioned journalism. And a big part of it is cultural, which is often the, uh, the bit that's overlooked. That culture is, is really supported by tech. Some of it is fully automated, but a large proportion of it is technology to turbocharge human decision-making. So, for example, the, location, the stated location of where a video is shot, does that match the IP address and of upload, or at least approximately? Does it match what I can see in Google Street View if I then drop a pin and have a look? We've had a number of instances of footage of Hurricane Sandy being uploaded from Tunisia, a helicopter crash in, in South London being uploaded from Mexico City. All of these things are prompted to us by technology, and then if the, if the asset is of high value, a human can follow up and quickly establish what's gone on. So between ClearCell and then founding Newsflare, what were the hardest parts about being a founder, right, starting your own business? Oh, wow. What are the hardest parts? Deciding what not to do is the, uh, the hardest part, actually. Uh, you quickly learn that you, you can't chase every avenue of opportunity that you, you can see or you think you can see or you think is worth pushing on. Yeah, deciding what you're not going to do, and you may come back to it 6, 12, 18 months, but for the next six months, at least, you're, you're not going to do it. That's something that I still have to wrestle with, and um, it's an important muscle to, to learn. Yeah, prioritization, right, and focus. <laughs> I think it always comes back to that, especially when you're young and you're, you're trying to figure out the right model for the business. And so there's a lot of things that you can chase, but it's really about going deep before you go wide, doing one thing very, very well, and continuing to grow and execute on that. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the single hardest thing, I'm trying to think in terms of other hard things that, that we've been through. I think kind of balancing... Um, the funding requirements of the business and the other sort of drivers of growth, so building team, recruitment, finding, finding great people. Uh, we've not struggled to hold on to great people, but it has taken us a while to find great people in certain roles at different times. And um, 
that's definitely something if I could get better at, I can see how it would make a material impact to the business. Of course. You mentioned you've gone through a couple of pivots along the way. When you reach one of those critical junctures and decide, well, do we keep going down the path we're on or decide to change the business pretty fundamentally, what are the things that you ask yourself in order to make that decision? Is it scalable? Is the market there? Can I service it efficiently? In doing so, am I going to build something that has capital value as well as just uh, supports future cash flows? Because if it has capital value over and above its ability to support revenue generation, uh, even be that efficiently, then it's going to be of, of appeal to, to somebody else at some point in the future. So we're in a very interesting time for the future of news and the future of media. How do you think about that in your business? And what is the role that social media is playing in defining that future? Yeah, I think we're at a really interesting juncture because I think um, all of a sudden there's two things going on at the moment that are particularly interesting. One, I think, is the the whole trust issue around not just the, the provenance of, of material and whether it's verified and true, but also trust in the direction between an audience and a publisher. Are you putting something in front of me that's actually of interest to me and of value to me, or are you eliciting a click from me to drive an outdated revenue model? So I think that's going on. And I think also from the point of view of, of the public, understanding what role they want rich media or social media to play in their day-to-day -day lives, when that's positive and conducive to a better way of living, and when that's actually making people affecting mental health negatively. I think we're at a stage of growth of social media and, and video's role in that where we're considering all of these things. And do you see a difference in countries that have, you know, state-owned or state-funded media where it's essentially a public utility, right, where the news uh, serves to educate and inform the populace versus something like the U.S. where news entities exist to turn a profit and thus seem to have kind of gravitated towards one end or the other of the political spectrum because they realize that extremism, both in television news coverage as well as in social media, is what drives conversation and thus clicks and monetization potential. I guess there's a couple of questions there. I mean, one, do I, do I characterize the U.S. news ecosystem as being different to overseas ones? I think the difference we see here is, is that there is, you have a bigger country than most of the other countries in the world. And so the news is preoccupied mainly with what goes on you know, within, within these states rather than, than outside. It's almost healthy that there is kind of slight extremism in the media because it's not done underneath the guise of impartiality. Impartiality is, is an impossible goal, absolutely. I think with public service broadcasters like the BBC in the UK, they're still interested. They still need to justify their licence fee. And they're still made up of individuals who have a political persuasion, whichever way that may be. So, yeah, I think, I think there are differences. I mean, RT is an interesting one to look at. It's widely criticised as being Putin's uh, propaganda machine. If I'm not British and I'm looking at the BBC World Service, is that done a more subtle British way, not a similar thing, potentially. I think where we're, in, where we're at at the moment is the possibility of an amazing plurality of media. And I think what we're waiting for are aggregators that emerge to, to pull together the various different sources, really in the interest of the consumer, and a, and a consumer-funded model that does that. And I know there are a few businesses that are starting to look at that. You're right. It's a very thorny topic. There's a lot of nuance to the question. I appreciate you breaking it out into those different pieces. And I guess to kind of take it in one direction first, it seems that people are beginning to look for multiple sources mm -hmm. to get their news rather than a single source, which may have been true in the past, and that these different economic models do have an impact, but at the end of the day, that 
every news source is driven by human journalists who do have an opinion and thus are bringing some of their own beliefs into the reporting. And so there, while there is a difference between being impartial and being objective, it, at times it seems that we are losing the objectivity that news used to carry. Do you think that's true? I think we used to believe that the news was objective, but now I think we're, we're seeing it for what it really is, which is essentially somewhere there's an editorial decision. There's a story that a journalist has or hasn't chosen to cover. There's an editor that, that runs this story and not that story because they've got to make certain ratings that you alluded to. I think all of these things are going on, but I think we're probably seeing them more clearly than we ever did before. And we're shocked to, to see what we, you know, to, to, to learn what we see. I think that the trust thing is very interesting when it comes to kind of considering different channels. You know, we know in the UK that only 7% of the populace now regularly get their news fix from newspapers, although broadsheet newspapers remain the most trusted source of news. The stats on social media as a primary source of news, for particularly for 18 to 25-year-olds, you know, it's off the chart. And yet how trusted it is, it, it rates as one of the, the least trusted. That's worrying, that sources of news that are trusted are, are actually waning severely in terms of the, the levels of consumption. It makes you wonder where, where, how it will play out. Not only that, but uh, it seems that these social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, right, they're run as private enterprises and they're subject to different regulations mm -hmm. than broadcast television, newspapers, etc. Will that change? And then there's also the fact that these platforms as private corporations have the ability to exercise even more control, right? And there's been cries of, um, of censorship of certain programs recently because they espouse hate speech or, mm -hmm. you know, ideologies that advertisers don't want to be associated with. How do you kind of think about those types of issues that are brought about between the differences in news media and social media platforms? Commerce moves quickly, governments move slowly, and I think governments around the world are looking at what's gone on with uh, the fake news scandal on, on Facebook, and I think they're also kind of, their dissatisfaction with the situation is being, you know, is being supported by old media who are perhaps more commercially interested in the diminishing of their, their advertising revenues. How to fix it? I think my sort of start of a 10 would be there are players in the media ecosystem that are proficient at building and maintaining relatively trusted brands. You know, so CNN, the BBC, there are ITN, there are a number of brands out there that are trusted. And whilst they may not totally achieve 100% objectivity, they at least have culturally, they strive towards it. I think where Facebook's gone wrong is, is it's kind of caught itself in this funny situation between insisting on uh, the status of a platform business and yet ignoring the fact that there is having a platform creates challenges that need to be addressed by someone. I think they could avoid addressing them themselves by making the proposition for established media, established news media, their role and position on the Facebook platform as more lucrative, incentivize them to basically do more, to curate more in the name of objectivity and, and, and verification, but make sure that they, they do it in a way that they get paid a fair price. And what will the business model look like in the future for these media brands, for the ITNs, CNNs, BBCs of the world, now that they, in many ways, don't really own the distribution anymore? They don't own the direct relationship with their consumer of the news. Are they going to try and get that back? You mentioned it seems like some news is going to go over the top and maybe this will be bundled together in an environment separate from traditional TV broadcast and or separate from social media. 
Do you think some of them will try to do that on their own? It seems like um, the New York Times, for instance, has been able to build a pretty healthy subscription business, but they're one of the few, if, if one of the only players that's been able to do that successfully. Yeah, I think, I think two things in answer to that question. One, I think people will pay for quality news, and I think it's just finding the model that allows choice of content um, and, and doesn't sort of push you behind a paywall. And, you know, the analogy I use is that you know, I might want... Um, in the UK, I might want to read the Telegraph for the uh, for the rugby section. I might want to read the Guardian for the culture, and I might want to read the Times and the Independent for for the politics and the and the, and the finance news. Pushing me behind a paywall, I'm not going to spend money on four paywalls. So I look at models like Blendle with interest, Compass News, which is a startup run out of New York now, is making some strides around aggregating news content for a millennial audience. So I think a couple of things. I think one, there'll be aggregators, and two you know, the consumer will pay rather than ad-funded model. It's an interesting thought. I wonder if that will lead to greater specialization within the news business, right? Some might focus more intently on sport. Some might focus just on news and politics or more investigative pieces because they don't need to have as much of a well-rounded offering anymore to compete for a consumer. They can specialize in a certain topic, right? Yeah, I think there's definitely efficiencies there. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what happened across the news industries with the formation of entities like the Associated Press... You know, the stories of them rowing out in rowboats to the middle of the Atlantic to, uh, to, to catch the news from London and then racing each other back and then realising, actually, we, we don't need six boats racing here. We could just have one and share the cost. I think there's a lot of that coming. But um, I think also different angles on, on the same subject matter. Uh, there's no doubt that the BBC's take on a, a political situation is very often different to Channel 4's in the UK and, and you know, likewise here with CNN and Fox. So there is a need for diversity of opinion across sort of key news segments. Sports, perhaps slightly different. And what does the future hold for Newsflare? For Newsflare, we're, we're still on a mission to be the global brand of where individuals go, where they, they want to monetize their video to the media. So it's, it's not just news. It's also TV, both entertainment, factual entertainment and factual. And then finally, if their video content is of that particular moment or conveying that emotion that a brand particularly wants to incorporate in their campaign, the opportunity for, for monetization is palpable. And what's coming next in the digital media space? Do you have a few predictions to offer? Predictions are dangerous because uh, <laughs> this podcast will have a, a life beyond, uh, beyond just today. What's coming next? I, I think there will be a, a big shakeout in, uh, in social media. I do, I do predict a bit of a decline of Facebook and I think there'll be They'll be faced with the choice of um, some significant pivots, but they'll ultimately survive. I think that as a, as a society in consumer digital media, we're going to, we're about to, we're just in a phase now of being much more selective about how we want to engage with it. Digital detox has been something that's been knocking around for a year or so, 18 months now. I don't see that getting less, I see that getting a bit more. So people are kind of resetting their desired relationship with digital and I think crucially as well the developers that are behind a lot of the features and functionality of these platforms also have a conscience and also are moving towards actually working out how tech and digital tech can really enhance people's lives rather than just drive a profit for a shareholder. So I see a lot more of that. For the big brands I see yeah I, I see sort of really an increased need to keep up with uh, the demands of a media hungry public. So whilst the public, when the public is driving its own consumption and, and is asserting what it wants to see, there's actually, there is 
incredible demand for, for rich media and keeping up with that and keeping up with uh, keeping your brand present in that context of, of mass media hyperconsumption is a real challenge for advertisers, I think. Yeah, it seems that the media cycles have only accelerated and continue to do so, which offers a challenge for the brands creating the news media, but also for audiences. How do you stay on top of all that's happening? And oftentimes it seems like a bit of a circus, right? It's distracting from what are the real issues at play. What do you mean by that? Well, I guess, you know, in, in an era in which the news cycle is 24 hours and now it seems like it changes every hour, like there's so much competing for your attention. As an individual, it's hard to follow what's going on. And particularly in the U.S., it's essentially just uh, a deluge of what most ridiculous thing Trump has done in the last 24 hours, right? And so that seems like it's almost taking advantage of the way that the news is structured as a business in order to distract Americans from what's really happening, right? From the real issues that are involved in politics that are shaping the future of, you know, of our of democracy. Yeah, I think I think that's very much um, that's very much an issue over here. That's less a, you know, it still goes on in the UK. We had some controversial remarks made by uh, Boris Johnson recently around women, Muslim women wearing the burqa. I think, to be honest, he's been he's been watching Trump with interest and he's picked up a couple of tips. Do I see that getting any more or any less? I think that finally the public will basically speak and say they've had enough of it, and will will stop stop watching channels that perpetuate. Yeah, I think just that really. I think um, as long as there's an audience for this stuff, then people will put it out, and politicians will um, will make sure they give them something to put out. Yeah, uh, it's a disappointing sort of set of affairs, but um, it feels like the modern incarnation of the uh, the British red tops, as we call them, the tabloids. It's a digital version of that, and um, there were certainly politicians here and abroad that managed to achieve that very well. I think of Silvio Berlusconi in Italy. He's been a acting this way for quite some time. What's something that you believe that everyone else in the industry might think is totally crazy? Do you have any strongly held contrarian views? Yeah. I don't think um, news publishers have worked out that they could be really successful uh, video aggregation and syndication players. You asked a question before about where I see them making their money and what have you, and subscription is one part of that. The second part of that, which I didn't get to, was... I think they're uniquely placed to acquire content from their audiences and that that content has a value more broadly in the, in, the, in the wider news ecosystem, but also outside of news. So we see from where we sit across news, TV entertainment and brands that certain assets are relevant to all three of those sectors. I think uh, the news very often sees a video asset, uses it for its own publication or broadcast and then forgets it. And actually, there could be significant long-tail value in monetizing uh, rich media assets. And it seems that a lot of the traditional print publishers have really struggled to make the transition to a video world. Mm. Are you observing that too? Is there a way that you can help usher them into more of a video era? Because video obviously has greater retention, audience engagement, higher monetization potential. So it seems like it would help them add a new you know, revenue mix into their monetization structure. Yeah, the challenges are, are very interesting. Sometimes it's technological. They just don't have the CMSs and the technology infrastructure to be able to handle video. And, and that's kind of inexcusable these days, given given the breadth of choice there is in, in that marketplace. So that's just, that's just an investment challenge. The biggest one to overcome is cultural. So if I've seen myself as a, a copy editor for the last 
20, 30 years of my career, then becoming a video editor, understanding that you know, a 90 second format with text overlay is gonna work better than a five minute raw video. These, these are all very new skills and it's a, it really is um, a big departure from what they've done. I think those that are brave will, will make team changes, both in terms of new personnel and in terms of training. But the other challenge they've got is that even within rich digital media, it's all evolving very, very quickly. So you, you could, within six months, catch up to where it is today, but it's already moved on. That's right. It's a moving target. Yeah, right. <laughs> so one question I'd love to ask all the entrepreneurs who come on the show is, if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? A totally fresh one. Yeah. yeah. And the, the idea here is just kind of for fun, thinking about what's the white space out there, right? Taking an entrepreneurial mindset to the current video space, given it changes so quickly, what are some things that you see that would get you excited or, or inspire you to start a business today? It's probably going to become a, a, new, a new division or branch of, of Newsflare's offering, but uh, digital rights management. I started a cross-platform digital rights management service um, that dealt with all of the major platforms and offline. And I'd take a, the proposition would be I'd take a cut of whatever I found for um, uh, individuals. Um, consumers. Yeah, it's an enormous challenge today, right? Especially as the rights landscapes are so different across traditional media and then digital and across all the platforms. YouTube with continuity having a fairly robust system to manage it, Facebook mm -hmm. being very late to the game. Mm -hmm. And we saw freebooting and Facebook actually contribute to the growth of some of the still most popular pages. Mm -hmm. And although they were not monetizing directly at the time, they built these huge audiences rather quickly leveraging other people's pirated content and now either can monetize directly or they're still selling their own branded content against the massive audience that they've accumulated. So that's just one platform and yet another challenge for Facebook, but it's going to play out across Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, etc. Yeah, I think um, those early Facebook pages, it was very much the Wild West and there was nothing to be gained directly from the monetization of that content that they were purloining. But they did build up audiences, and of course, then they go back and they delete the historical content, and they're still left with the audience. Yeah, it's not entirely ethical, but kind of you know, risk reward, fair play to them. I think that will be tolerated much less moving forward. In fact, I know that uh, certain pages have tried for Facebook monetization recently, haven't been eligible based on previous copyright strikes and what have you. When we started Newsflare, we were very concerned that possibly the tide of uh, respect of copyright was 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 move would move against us. That's not been the case with technologies like blockchain and what have you. That's it's definitely moving the other direction. That individual content is or copyright is respected and and increasingly enforced. And I think that, that there is still a gap around enforcement. And that's where I, where I see the opportunity if I was starting a business today. Fantastic, uh, John. Where can people find out more about you and more about Newsflare? www.newsflare.com. More about me. Drop me an email, I'm in for coffee. Fantastic, very good. Well, I'm so glad that we got to do this. It's great to hear a little bit more about your journey as an entrepreneur, but also dig into Newsflare's model and also the challenges and some of the, the evolution of journalism and the role that you're playing in introducing technology to make that easier for people who are capturing this content, as well as the news publishers who are uh, kind of trying to spread that content to a bigger audience. So thanks again. It's been a pleasure, James. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.